Welcome to Hindsight 3150. I'm Kinga. I'm Jacob. I'm Dana, and today we have a new member of our podcast family. Hi guys, it's Sophia. We are students at Brooklyn College, and this is a second episode of a short series on the origin, workings, and the persistence of fascism and fascist tactics and ideology. Last week, we discussed the characteristics of great history theme podcasts, and today we'll talk about why anyone would become a fascist. But before we jump into this fascinating question, we first have to establish what fascism actually is. Although we can't establish exactly what fascism is, John Ciardi once said, anything which can be placed within the bounds of definition is but the kindergarten of perception. Paxton says, fascism is marked by obsessive preoccupation with community, decline, humiliation, or victimhood by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. Hmm. That is a great definition, that Jacob. Is, that is quite a definition. <laughs> quite a definition. One <laughs> sentence. <laughs> One sentence, people. All right, so before we launch into our discussion, we should establish the difference between fascism and nationalism. I think that's crucial. People always conflate the two. Yeah. Go ahead, Dana. So nationalism is believing that your country's great and having pride in your country. While fascism would be believing your country is superior to others and that you should conquer and subjugate others because mm-hmm. you have the right. And because you're better? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that is a great distinction. I think most of us today, we, we think as it's a one almost and the same. So this is great. Yeah. These terms are not interchangeable. Nope. <laughs> So, why would someone become a fascist? Should we take a look first at fascism on a larger scale, like Italy and Mm -hmm. Germany, guys? Mm -hmm. Yep. Sure. So, for Germany, becoming fascist, it became a bit of a powder keg after the First World War. (laughs) The Treaty of of Versailles left Germany humiliated, defeated, their military was disbanded, Mm -hmm. they had to pay all these reparations, and they were blamed completely for the war. Italy, on the other hand, although it was on the side of the uh, Allies, felt humiliated because at the Treaty of Versailles, it was in no way given a reward, as some of the land it wanted in Africa, say, which it ultimately had to fight for uh, later on. I think those are crucial points. How would you guys say that that victimhood and humiliation led to such a radical ideology. I think the feeling of humiliation bonded the people together Mm. in this really twisted way because they had a common enemy. They wanted to rebuild, to show the world that, you know, they they weren't going to be kept down. I think, Afia, in our earlier discussion, you've made a really important um, note of the other. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, and it also kind of gave the, like, a way to create this two, 
how should I say groups like majority versus minority and to blame the minority as like or use them as an scapegoat in this case Germany used the Jewish population as like the minority to blame mm -hmm. them everything that was going on at the time to the Germany as a country as whole okay so so finding the other, finding someone that we can blame, blame our misery yes. on, blame our poor conditions on, mm -hmm. and rally against uh -huh. to, um, to, to create what we perceive as something great. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that is really, really great point. Um, does anything else, guys, um, stands out to you on that larger scale? Um, I think in, in um, whether it's uh, Melita Mashman or um, what was the name of the German Hermann Furbach. Furbach. I think, and, and even Mussolini tapped um, in his definition of fascism, they've tapped a bit on that, how, what a profound um, tool of radicalization, the war, World War One, was in itself. So, as we've mentioned, you mentioned Dana, um, you know, the Versailles treaties, and you, Jacob, too. But even the war, they um, like Forbach talks about how the war created this patriotic enthusiasm and um, united the um, people behind that idea of a country as well. So mm -hmm. I think the war was a crucial part of it, not just the aftermath of the war. Yep. Mm -hmm. the, the trouble uh, with that is uh, that it, the countries were had to find a scapegoat in all of this. Yes. Uh, there was a frustrated middle class which was fearing economic pressure from demands and aspirations of lowest level social groups. Mm -hmm. And so they developed the sense of xenophobia, which led often to the fear of Jews or other groups who were, which were minorities. Mm -hmm. To speak to uh, the, what's the, what's the word where you don't like foreign? I can't think of the word right now. Anyway. Um, <laughs> xenophobia? In, yeah, xenophobia. In xenophobia. Mashman's book, she mentions being young and seeing foreign troops in oh, yes, yes. her homeland and how that, you know, it makes you angry, it makes you fearful, and that would have been plenty of fuel for someone to become a fascist. Absolutely. So since Dana, you mentioned Melita Mashman and uh, her book Account Rendered, uh, perhaps we could now shift the conversation a bit into what was, what, what, what were the common um, traits or common circumstances or just overall or the circumstances of some of the people we've read about why did they become fascist because in a way it seems like there was no one generic rule that each of them struggled with a different things different issues some some circumstances were shared but then many were very different that's Jacob. true uh, so, for example, Piccolini, he, he's very careful to point out that he felt marginalized, he had low self-esteem, a mm -hmm. great deal of self-hatred. Mm -hmm. And when he found this uh, Nazi organization, they gave him what he needed, a sense of identity and a sense of community. Absolutely. I think that is one of the um, 
that really stood out for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I watched Piccolini's TED talk, um, I, I remember he used the word a lifeline that the Nazi, the white nationalist organization gave him extended like a lifeline, something that gave him a sense of purpose, belonging, even though he did not necessarily understand the ideology. Mm-hmm. But it was a place where um, he belonged, where he was accepted and um, he belonged. He, um, I think, Dana, you, um, you earlier we were talking about um, Piccolini and you had some really interesting thoughts on him as well. With the potholes? Yes, with the potholes. Yeah, <laughs> um, Christian says uh, that everyone's life is full of potholes, and when you hit them, your life can veer off in an unexpected way. And for him, potholes were things like being a, if, if you were abused, if you were unemployed, mm-hmm. if you had some kind of mental health condition, that these were all potholes, and that if you didn't fill them, they... Like what happened to him, he grabbed on to the first thing mm-hmm. that was thrown to him, which happened to be thrown by a white nationalist. Yes, I think that's a good point. It's if, if the pothole is not filled in and if you hit it, you'll stray off of your path. And I think it's important to point out that he said himself, he did not come from a, like a hatred household. He came in from an immigrant Italian family working people um, and loving people. Obviously, poverty was an issue, working, parents were working a lot, so they did not have the time perhaps to offer him and and fill those potholes in. But, you know, you don't have to necessarily be a hater to be drawn into, or a bad person to be drawn to these organizations and to these ideologies. Um, Afia, I think uh, you've made a great observations earlier about the unemployment and some other external c- circumstances might uh, contribute to someone yeah, another joining thing that the Germany at the time they were going through was the unemployment rate. It was so high, and in my opinion, majority of the um, young men at the time, I don't think they were really focusing on their ideologies or they had to like they had to follow or like, you know, be in this organization. I think they had no choice. The circumstances they were in, the financial ones, mm-hmm. some just joined the cause just to get yes. the financial support they were gonna get, like food or shelter or whatever. I think that's a great point. Sometimes we automatically dehumanize people that are in these organizations and mm-hmm. we don't factor that perhaps that was the only way to put a foot on a table. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. just to add the stats to what Afia was saying, that in 1930, two million people were unemployed, which was a mm-hmm. third of all the adults in Germany. There you like, go. That's how desperate they, were. they would have been. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And here you go, you have a, suddenly this party and organization that's giving you options and opportunities. And they're promising you that they're going to take care of and make Germany better. So obviously they're going to be drawn to this. So it's like they're not only mm-hmm. throwing the people a lifeline, they, they're throwing the country as a whole. Absolutely. Like join our party and we can rebuild Germany. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
you know, what what stood out uh, for me as well, and I think for, for all of us, uh, as we've talked earlier, is what Melita Mashman talks about um, in her book and how the movement and the Nazi party really offered her something bigger than herself. When she watched on January 30th, 1933, the procession of the National Socialists uh, celebrating their victory, and she felt that these young men and women, or girls and boys actually marching that were her age, really stood for something so much bigger than uh, her little uh, teenage uh, bourgeoisie middle-class life. And she talks about it. It's, it. It was something that allowed, it was like a life or death situation. I think, Dana, you had a great quote on that. Yes, on page 18 she says, I wanted to escape from my childish narrow life and wanted to attach myself to something that was great and fundamental. This longing I shared with countless others of my contemporaries. Yeah, exactly. I think very well said. Go mash mad. <laughs> um, and, you know, one thing that stood out for me as well in Piccolino's uh, TED Talk he says something that, you know, along those lines that fascism, Nazism, and all these, maybe we could call them hate groups, radical groups, they rise from disconnection from each other. He says that hatred is born of ignorance, fear is its, his, its father, and isolation is a mother. And I think that also relates to what Afia, you and you, Jacob, said with the other, that mm -hmm. oftentimes we, you know, point the finger, we find the scapegoat, but we don't really, it's like an imaginary other. It's, it's vilified other, but it's not really rooted in any yeah. reality. Yeah. Yeah, going yeah. off what you were saying reminds me mm -hmm. of Harari's TED Talk, where he's talking about how you can be manipulated emotionally. Oh, I think and, that's so important, Dana. Yeah, because if ahead. you're, you know, if people are telling you, you know, your country's beaten down and these are the people to blame, you're going to want to blame them. Yes. Yeah, and mm -hmm. he also talks about um, the trap of the fascist mirror, which mm -hmm. is basically, if you're a fascist and you're looking at yourself, you're not going to see the bad things. You're not going to see the hate. You're going to see the potential Absolutely. for the good things that you can do. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think he also really well elaborated on really how crucial control of information and data is yeah. um, in, you know, maybe prevention of fascism or how it could contribute to, uh, to the growth and the rise of new form of fascism today. Yeah, I said this before when we were talking that if knowledge is power, then information is a weapon. And... That's how they mm -hmm. use it. They can keep it to themselves so you don't really know what yes. is happening in the mm -hmm. country. Absolutely. And that's why like fascist regimes they put they have such control over the press because they can't have people contradicting their ideology. Correct. You know, also what stood out for me really in uh, Melita Mashman is her you know, when she talks about uh, her becoming a fascist, how in a way, on one way it was rejection of the bourgeoisie values of her mother, but she also talks about that nurturing of nationalism that she grew up around and how 
you know, as much as she rejected some part of her being, she was so drawn into, you know, Germans, they were breathing. It was like a, the nationalism, ultra-nationalism became this like a bread and butter. They were all, you know, it was so ingrained in them. And then in that situation, and it wasn't just national, it was like ultra-nationalism. It was easier when things don't go well to suddenly find the scapegoat mm -hmm. and blame someone and um, fault someone for what is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we kind of got a lot of points in. Yeah. This is actually we could probably have like a thirty-minute discussion <laughs> on it. Um, we did. Any <laughs> yeah, between anyone, anything, guys, that we think uh, we should add to it. Any points? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think so. No. Yeah. So I think the key is here. We really don't think there is one way of becoming a fascist. Yeah. It's it's like a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a lot of decision, personal choices, collective choices, outside circumstances, yeah. and they all come together and mess things up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well put. So well put. So, all right, that's that's it for today. <sighs> We're gonna disconnect. See you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. 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 <laughs>